Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 10 of Revenue on the Rocks. We made it to double digits. Pretty exciting. Today, we're going to talk about something I talk a lot about on my LinkedIn or just to anyone who will listen, all about improving the B2B buying experience and how to remove some of those friction points. We're going to really dive into the cause of like what makes B2B so frustrating and how focusing on a people first approach, you know, how do we market and sell the people rather than people as leads can make that better. As always, we have an absolutely amazing guest on today. I am so excited. Today we have Nick Bennett. If you're not familiar with Nick, I'd be shocked. But just in case you're not, he has a crazy portfolio. I didn't even know what to include as far as intro because there are too many things to include. But he is a full-time creator, co-founder of Club PF, which is a community and resource center for anyone looking to switch to a people-first go-to-market strategy. And then also the host of his own podcast, The Anonymous Marketer. And so Nick, before we dive into people-first strategy, learn all about it, want to know what you're drinking, but I will preface with today, we are recording a little earlier. We're recording at 2 p.m., so we all kind of opted for non-alcoholic drinks so we can make it through the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I am drinking a cold brew from Dunkin'. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be a Boston guy if I wasn't drinking Dunkin' Donuts, right? So usually I drink Starbucks. I've been drinking Dunkin's cold brew lately. It's a lot cheaper. We keep saying that's going to be the new requirement, like bring your local beer. So I feel like the coffee form of that for Boston would be a Dunkin' Cold Brew. And Ben, what about 100%. you? What is your non-alcoholic drink today? Um, similar to Nick, I did go with the cold brew myself, although there's a Starbucks like a stone's throw from my house. So that's typically where I go, except for about a week or so ago, it was National Donut Day. So Nick, I did make the extra mile drive to Dunkin' Donuts and got myself a free donut. So I'm a big Dunkin' fan myself. What is your go-to Dunkin' Donut, like the actual donut? For me, it's a chocolate frost. I like to keep it simple. The uh, strawberry frosting with sprinkles. Ooh, both good choices. I think I'm kind of a traditional like glazed person, but you can't really go on with anything. Yeah, I'm drinking just tea today. I'm actually more of a tea person rather than coffee, which kills me because I'm very Italian, but made the switch to tea and have noticed my stress levels gone down a little bit. Natalie, can I just give you a little bit of shit really quick? You're a vegetarian and you also only drink tea. What else you got for me? I love to recycle. <laughs> I actually didn't know you were a vegetarian. I feel like we've like hung out and like, I don't know, maybe you've told me that. I try not to talk about it too much because I've actually been one since I was 10 years old and I'm the only person in my family. Oh, wow. So when I decided to do it, my mom sat me down and said, you're allowed to do this. You can't be annoying about it. Like you can't make other people feel guilty. So I really, I don't mention it that much. But yeah, if you look behind the hood, I'm a little bit of a hippie. Well, now that everyone knows my deep secrets... Nick, want to hear a little bit shifting gears to, I guess, any secrets you have with sales? You know, what is your typical relation with sales? Some positive and past experience and maybe some things that are a little frustrating. Oh, yeah. You know, for me, I'm a traditional field marketer. So sales has always been my customer at the end of the day, like internal customer. And I was in sales before I moved over to marketing. So trust me, I have walked in sales shoes, not on the tech side of things, but in non-tech sales. I was really good at it. I just hated a quota hanging over my head every quarter. But one thing that I realized is you have to build relationships. And that's what I spend the first you know, 60 days doing in any new role is building a relationship with sales. It's like, hey, listen, I was you at one point. I'm not here to talk about MQLs or how I'm going to drive more leads. I want to talk about how I'm going to put more money in your pocket. You talk about putting money in a salesperson's pocket, they, they get happy. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 let's do this together. So positively, like, you know, you start to build a really strong relationship. You start to walk that fine line between sales and marketing. 
The negative side of it is, you know, for me, I've worked with enterprise teams in the past, uh, a lot of them, and they very much look at field marketers as event planners. They're like, oh, yo, I'm an enterprise rep. Like, I don't need marketing's help to do this. And in reality, they're terrible marketers and they actually do need marketing's help and they actually need field marketing's help. And it's more than just events, but they don't want to be educated on like helping them because, you know, they're like, hey, look, I got to my career doing this. I don't need you. But it always ends poorly if you don't build those relationships. I was going to give you a shout out, Nick, when you talked about how you used to be in sales and how that's been one of your strengths, because I feel like every time I watch you on something or even just talk to you, you're very personable. Like you're very good at making those connections with other departments. So it's cool to hear that you've kind of had that varied background and that helps because I think when it comes down to this podcast and the day, so much of it is just similar to how we're going to think about your prospects as people. Just think about your coworkers as people rather than conflicting departments. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I honestly think everyone in marketing should spend, at least revenue marketing roles should spend time in sales. It doesn't have to be an SDR role, but like, yo, hey, try it out for a little bit. Maybe shadow them, like feel like you can't work as a marketer if you haven't like experienced what it's like as a salesperson. You know, what's interesting to piggyback off of that as we're just kind of jamming on this is I'm so jealous of so many marketers who were formerly salespeople that moved into marketing because it's such a benefit, Nick, to your point, to be able to say, I've walked a mile in your shoes. I understand these pain points. From my perspective at Nevada, Nick, you know this, our primary ICP is marketers. So I'm selling to marketers all day. I don't have a lick of marketing experience in my background. I don't think I'd be particularly good at it. I actually think I'm pretty bad at it. And it's incredible the, the amount of jargon or, or normal things that Natalie knows from her background as a growth marketer that are foreign to me. And sometimes I do get sort of self-conscious about that where I'm like, I need to like pseudo become a marketer because it will help me sell better, serve our ICP a lot better. But I feel like a lot of marketers have backgrounds to who they serve now, which is such a big advantage versus like no sales rep is like, oh, I used to be in marketing and now I run a sales team. So I have that great experience. I just don't hear that a whole lot. And that's kind of a, a disadvantage on the sales side, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like the sales people that like are okay with mentioning that and like, okay with working with marketing are the ones that build like stronger relationships over time. And for me, like, you know, I've always been in MarTech or sales tech predominantly and like, you know, I am the ICP and the Mark Tech side of it. So like sales brings me in on a regular basis, which that's like, you know, hey, they're you know, struggling with some of the acronyms and things like that. They're like, I have to rely on Nick because he knows this. Again, it's like we built a strong relationship where it's like, yeah, I'll jump on a call with you. Now, if you treat me like crap, like I could be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to help you at all. Like you haven't helped me. Relationships equal everything. Yeah, I think being a subject matter expert whether you're actually the ICP or not, if you can just learn a lot about it, is kind of the fast track for marketing if you do want to get a little more of a seat at the table. Like I think marketing, it can be difficult. Sales tends to have a little more clout, but it's always really helpful if you can say, no, I need to be in this meeting because I know about this or I have insights here or can help answer those questions about acronyms. So I do want to dive into, as I mentioned at the top of the call, not just you know how can we improve those relationships between sales and marketing, but how can we improve the relationship with our actual prospect? So Ben, going to start it with you. I feel like most sellers are really personable, awesome, nice people. Why then, if they are so great at connecting with people, does the B2B buying experience so feel so like disconnected and often a negative experience for the prospect? I think, Natalie, to answer your question, the leadership team has to take ownership over that. So it's not like I hire Nick Bennett, who's incredibly personable. He's going to be amazing at sales. And then all of a sudden, Nick starts running a shitty sales process because that's what he chooses to do. 
I don't see it that way. I think a lot of SaaS companies listen to the wrong opinions and advice when they're building go-to-market motions. They listen to their VCs, their investors, their advisor at a Series D company who's trying to tell them how to build a go-to-market motion. And meanwhile, I work at a seed stage company. You know, how many times have you heard, hey, you need to, you need to close six-year contracts. You need, to, you need to move up market. You need to build a self-serve motion. You need to build enterprise and forget about all those startups that you're working. All of this advice without any nuance. And I think that creates bad sales processes where sometimes companies are trying to take something that might have worked at a past company and just assume that it will also work here. Or despite what their sales reps are saying, despite what their prospects are saying, our investors are telling us, hey, we have to raise ACVs by 10 or 15K. So we're going to make some changes very quickly in our sales process to get there. And I think a lot of the times, you know, sales reps are just sort of doing what they're told, even if they know for a fact that it's not going to get the job done as efficiently as maybe another option would. So I think a lot of times it just comes down to listening to the wrong people. And I won't go too much on a rant on this. Natalie, you know this, but this has always been my gripe with LinkedIn. I feel like I open LinkedIn and there's never any nuance. It's always, hey, are you a, a SaaS leader at a Series A company? This is exactly how you should do it. This is what your playbook should look like. And oftentimes it's just painting with a broad brush and lacks a lot of that nuance. That is, I think, what creates poor go-to-market motions. Yeah, it's, it's that company first mindset where you think like it's very much transactional. You think it's very much about quantity over quality. It's doing the wrong things because you're trying to run the playbook from what you've done maybe a company's years ago. And what works in 2023, I mean, even like two years ago, it's probably like the same things change. Like people say channels are dead all the time, but it's like you just have to figure out how to creatively attack them and figure out how to like triangulate all of these things together. And running that same playbook isn't going to get there. And, you know, you hear all these people. I, I agree on the LinkedIn side. It's very noisy. And there's so many people that think it's a one size fits all out there. And like you have these leaders and these founders that see an influencer on LinkedIn that's like, oh, this person said I have to go do this. So let's go do it. But they work, you know, kind of like you said, like a Series D company, maybe you're at a seed stage. That's it, it's not going to work. And you need to get these founders and executives that work for these companies to understand that, that it, it doesn't work. Like what works for me is not going to work for you. And I mean, that's just like in, in life in general. And they just see the shiny kind of object syndrome and they want to go to wherever that is. This is a super hard question, but do either of you have solutions that's worked in the past of how you help with that shiny object syndrome? Because it's hard. Founders are generally pretty opinionated and don't always like to be told, no, we shouldn't do that. I mean, I've used data. If I can show, hey, this is the impact that I'm going to have with like these modern day programs. I mean, take this whole like creator economy. It works. And in MarTech and SalesTech, we're at the very much early adopter phase. But if you use, you know, self-reported attribution mixed with all these other things, you can actually paint a picture of like, look, this works. I don't need to go pump MQLs or lead gen forms or whatever. I can take the creator and mix it with some other cool things and ultimately borrow trust and authority from a lot of these people, whether internally, externally, and you're going to help drive a lot of awareness at probably a cheaper rate than running paid ads or search or stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's two things that come to my mind. I think, again, when you think about listening to the right people or the wrong people, there's a lot of success stories that are very different than maybe, Nick, like what you mentioned, that shiny post on LinkedIn. Like, for example, I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was with one of the founding go-to-market members at GitHub. And at GitHub, for the first four or five years, their ACV was like 8 to 10K. Now it's massive. Now it's an enterprise product, right? But you put that into perspective. Like, oh, wow. It took that company that is incredible 
four to five years to get enterprise traction and to, to get an ACV higher than, than eight to 10K and, and GitHub, if I'm getting those numbers slightly wrong, I apologize. But that's really, really, really good context. And I think to you know agree with Nick's point, Nick said data, my initial thought was revenue, right? Like I know VCs are really, really excited about ACVs. I know that your advisors and investors are, are gonna be really excited about that, that sexy six-figure deal or those enterprise contracts. But you know what they're gonna be even more excited about? Steady, consistent growth, growth in a top tier for startups. Ultimately, revenue kind of solves everything. We're always trying to iterate. We're always trying to get better. We have goals we're trying to reach. But Nick said data. And what I would say is revenue. As long as your company is growing at a, at a pace you're really, really excited about, I think you're doing a lot more right than you are wrong. Yeah. You bring up a good point that I just wanted to say as well. You know, you talk about like, you know, these enterprise deals and these like sexy logos. What happens usually is your company and your product isn't ready to handle all of these enterprise logos that you all of a sudden bring on, then you wonder a year later why you have churn issues. And I think that's the thing too. It's like, you know, hey, like I'd rather take a bunch of like 30, 40, 50K deals than like a couple like, you know, 250K deals. Because again, if your product can't support it, if your team can't support it, you're going to have bigger issues. And on top of that, I've talked to so many go-to-market leaders who say my product entirely shifted because suddenly when we got three enterprise deals, we were building for those enterprises because you're not going to lose those. But if the majority of your customers are mid-market, the features that they need are very different than enterprise. And then suddenly your product is very disparate. It also gets back to the main question, Natalie, of like, how can we best serve our prospects? We get asked this all the time with self-serve. Hey, why doesn't Nevada have a self-serve product? Eventually we're going to get there. We're really excited about it. We don't have it just yet. But what would be better for the prospect? Asking them to go through a more sales-led motion that's going to be an extremely effortless experience and it's going to be flawless and seamless or throwing them into a self-serve motion in a product that maybe isn't quite ready for that. They might run into some issues. They might have some concerns. And now they've had a bad experience with Novatic. We can check the box of, cool, we have self-serve. But if it's a terrible experience for our prospects, I still think the sales-led motion that's going to be a lot more seamless for them is, is something that they would prefer at this point anyway. Yeah, it feels like so many companies are just doing things like going product-led or gunning enterprise companies because they've been told it's what they should do versus thinking, am I at the correct stage of growth for this? A few episodes ago, we had Andrew Kaplan on talking about PLG. And one thing I loved is he talked about like, it's good to bring on either at the very beginning or once you've hit a stagnation point and you've already perfected your product. It doesn't necessarily need to be just when your investors are telling you you need to go PLG. We went on a little bit of a, a tangent there, but I, I think always a good conversation to help help people align around focusing on your prospect. And I think my first tip around making the selling experience less shitty, let's just call it, is staying focused to your ICP and not feeling like, oh, I need to go out and go enterprise. I need to go out and do self-serve. Really figure out what your core buyers want. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you have to talk to your customers and prospects to be able to get that. Like so often marketers, like I talk to so many marketers that are like, oh, like I don't talk to customers or I don't talk to prospects. Like I've joined most of the companies I've worked for, I've joined seven to 10 calls a week. And I wasn't just sitting there listening. I mean, I was jumping in, like I was adding value to the conversation. I was understanding their pain points. What does a strategy actually look like around that? That's how you add value on top of that. Like it's, it's so much more that I think a lot of people ignore, but like going back to like the ICP thing, it's like, you know, what is your ICP? If you ask like so many companies out there and like, what's your ICP? I guarantee you get like a variety of answers that are all over the place from like super high to super tactical. And so many people don't have that piece dialed in. And they just, again, goes, I spoke at a conference recently and it was like, Everyone was talking about PLG or community-led growth or customer-led growth. Everyone wanted to put a lead growth. And 
again, it's just like the cool thing to do now, but like, what is the strategy that goes back to like the whole, like go to market that ties it all together? Nick, it's to your point as well. Most companies think when they hear, especially on the sales side, talk to your prospects. Most heads of sales are probably thinking, yeah, yeah, go talk to the one, uh, to the deal that you didn't win. Find out why we didn't win. That's obviously really, really important. We have to focus on something pretty different though. I want to talk to all the deals we did win. Why did we win it? Why? It was a very, very competitive deal. Why did you choose us versus them? And the other thing too, I would say for go-to-market leaders is if you are consistently losing deals, again, I'm not recreating the wheel here, but the stuff is pretty simple. If you're consistently losing deals because of a feature, beer pricing is too expensive, you constantly hear that, you need to make changes. It's okay if your investors are a little sad that your ACV is going down because if your win rates are increasing, that's going to be very, very important. So constantly auditing why you win deals and not just why you lose deals will also really help you hone in on what you're super, super good at. Because when you talk to deals and prospects of deals that you've closed and won, they're going to tell you why and you can find consistencies in there. And then you can continue to sort of attack those points on the pre-sale side. When you ask them, that's when you hear about, well, I really love the sales experience or I really appreciate how much information I could get up front, like pricing, understanding, you know, an interactive demo. What do I see and understand your product before? If you don't have those best practices, you're kind of not hearing that you're losing because of it. Like most prospects don't tell you, oh, I didn't go with you because your salesperson was an asshole and really pissed me off. But I've, I know I have disqualified companies for that exact reason. Nick or Ben would love to hear any data or examples you have. I know, Nick, you have a lot of examples firsthand of how you've won deals or data showing that by being people first, it did help that sales cycle. Now, I want to preface this. It's easier when you're working for a MarTech company. It's like, you sell to marketers and like you are the buyer, you can connect a lot more and then it helps that your, you know, your audience is also marketers. So it's like, it's easier to make that connection. Um, and it's easier when you're okay with like wanting to talk to prospects and customers and being a part of it. Now, I think the tough thing is like, how do you actually do that? Like you have to have those conversations. You have to be willing to join. Let the prospect tell you where they heard. Maybe they heard us from this podcast. Maybe then they went to the website. Maybe they go check out an event that you're doing, like that happy hour or something like that. It all connects and it tells you a story. And it's like, cool, now you know what channels to invest in. If you don't actually spend the time to do it, you know, you're going to be wasting cycles. You could be pumping emails all day, but if the open rate and click-through rates like subpar, why are you just still running the same playbook? And then curious from your perspective, if there are any hesitations from sales or maybe why some sales teams wouldn't be as excited about adopting this. Yeah, I'll, I'll sort of highlight why maybe there's initial hesitations, but then I'll also talk about some of the results we've seen from like H2H or more people-led, honestly, leads, opportunities, and marketing initiatives that, we, that we've run here at, at Nevadic. I think the, the number one hesitation is oftentimes if it's like a human-to-human -human or an influencer lead or a LinkedIn-type lead, there's two sometimes red flags that come with those for, for sales reps. Number one, oftentimes there's some sort of promotion Right. So Nick says, Hey, friends, anybody interested in getting started with Nevadic? I got a 20% off coupon. So you're initially like a sales rep, like, ah, okay, like it might be a hot lead, but I know this is going to be a lower ACV. The second one, and Natalie, I complained about this endlessly, and you know this, you probably already know what I'm going to say, is especially on LinkedIn with a lot of human to human, there's a ton of window shoppers. So people who come in and they say, I'm a huge fan of Nick Bennett. I saw on LinkedIn, he was posting about Nevadic. I know nothing about your product. I don't even have a software, but I booked this time because like Nick loves you. And so I think I should love you too. Just tell me what you do. And you're just like, oh, that sucks. Like that's a brutal call. That might happen once in a while. However, that's fairly few and far between. 
The most positive results that we have seen by far is if you went up to any rep at Nevadic and asked them, where do the best leads come from? They come from advisors, influencers, LinkedIn, those sorts of outlets. It's not going to be Google, SEO, or like outbound. It's always something from like a human to human connection. And so that is by far like the strongest and highest quality leads that we see here at Nevadic. So I think sales reps are going to get more and more excited about the creator space, creator-led growth, creator-led leads, because by far in Nevada, those are our hottest leads. It's not even close. I, I am curious, Natalie, and maybe this is more for you, like you do some trade shows. I'm curious on like, how's that worked for you all? And like how, you know, when you're taking those leads and passing them to the team, like, are they any good? Do you, do you close deals from them? We definitely close deals. The way I describe most events is we're going to get the ROI back. Like, we don't go for the biggest, flashiest package. We want to be there. And everyone we've done, we've at least gotten the ROI back, usually two or three X. But that for us is like maybe closing two or three deals. I always say, though, and luckily, really with that people first mindset, and our founders agree with this, I, you should think about conferences and trade sales about relationship building way more than revenue. And even for marketing, a lot of it's partnerships. Nick, we got to finally meet each other for the first time at a conference and we were already working together, but it just made it that much better when we could actually meet and talk in person. The Chili Piper report we just put out, that's because I got to meet Arthur, got to really talk about it at that conference because we had time to sit down and do that. So from a marketing perspective, yes, you want to get ROI back from the events and conferences, but really think about the partnership opportunities. And that's where we've seen the most success, I would say. Nice. I am. I'm just always curious on that side because I'm not a huge believer of trade shows. I know this is a little bit of a tangent as well, but like, I think, you know, doing activations around events and like trade shows in general, taking those advisors, creators, and like all these other things and like unleashing them in these events might be a better spend than like getting a, you know, $50,000 booth, for example. I don't know. I would love to like see some like data and like more, and who knows, maybe I'll be able to like tap into this more, but like, I would just love to see what this actually looks like for companies that would be willing to like try an activation like that. I think for us, it's much more about just being there, as I said, than necessarily the booth. Like that's why we don't usually go for the flashy booth. It's just mm. the fact that so many great marketers are in one spot. So like you said, I'm sure if you have the clout to curate that in an activation event or a dinner, you could probably get the same returns. Nick, a marketer who um, talks shit about events is a-okay by me. I love that. Feel like that's honestly, I don't hear a lot from marketers. Someone who's like, yeah, events are kind of like, or I should say, trade shows rather are maybe a little sus. Yeah, it's tra trade shows. I'm definitely, and trust me, I've done lots of them, but I do think micro events, like I think the sales team can benefit from these micro events and like these elevated experiences way more than, than a trade show. Like if you're doing the show over and over, year over year, I guarantee you the amount of new people that you're going to meet is going to be less and less each year because I've run into this in the past and it's like, what happens? All of a sudden, you know, you get like 20%, then it's maybe 10%, then it's 3%. Sales teams are going to be like, we're keep investing into these trade shows, but we're seeing less and less leads come from in hot leads and conversations. I think that you just have to figure out additional things as the years pass. And that's a good point because we've only been doing events for about a year or so, but I've even seen like the second time we've done them, some of the same faces. I think going back to your point around activation events though, that's why the people first strategy is so important. Because if you run an activation event and no one there knows who any of your team is, it's going to be kind of awkward. Like I've seen that before. Versus Nick, I'm sure you've done this when you run activation events and you're a face on LinkedIn. Suddenly prospects want to go up and talk to you and it just feels like a conversation versus a scary sales pitch. 100%. I think that's why it's like it's easier again, like going back to like the MarTech side of it. But it's like 
when you host an event and like marketers want to talk to marketers, you know, nothing against you, Ben, but like marketers don't want to talk to salespeople at these, these events. And it's just like, I would much rather talk to Natalie for, you know, 30 minutes and like we could jam out on a bunch of stuff and like, cool, I could learn more about the company and things like that. But like we connect on a deeper level. And then who knows, maybe that gets me more excited about the company. And then, you know, the sales team comes in from that. But I would much rather see marketer to marketer versus like marketer to salesperson. Nick, I have a very specific and a bit of a selfish question. Because one thing we see sometimes is people will reach out to me on LinkedIn and say like, hey, I, I want a demo of Novatic. And I know the platform well enough, like I use it not daily, weekly, that I can give a demo. But let's be honest, like our sales team's better at it. And that's not my job. I'm happy to do it every now and then. But I am a team of one. I have a lot of other things going on. I guess, how do you handle that as a marketer? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think there's, there's ways to do it, but it doesn't scale as like one person either. That's like the tricky thing. And it's like, I mean, yeah, you could use Nevatic to be able to, to do that, to get you know, a lot of people familiar with it. But like I give demos all the time and it's like, I'll do it to a certain degree and like I'll act as the SDR or BDR and it's like, cool, I'll do the qualification and we chat and, you know, it might turn into something, might not. But like, I definitely try not to do it as much anymore. And it's, it was, it, it's tough because it doesn't scale. And it's like you said, you have a million other things to do. You can't be giving, you know, 10, 15 demos a week and people taking time out of your day when you have to ultimately drive, you know, business results at, at the end of it too. So I just... I try to be more selective. And if it's like a target account, for example, if it's like account that the sales team really, really wants to win, it's like, I've been trying to get a hold of them. And it's just randomly, I'm connected to someone on their marketing team. I reach out, be like, hey, would just love to jam for 30 minutes and like talk about like how I might be able to help you. No salesperson, we won't record it. It'll just be an honest conversation. And those actually go over really, really well. Can I jump in with, with something here? I think what you both said makes a ton of sense to me, but I also think it's a really important like micro experiment into knowing your ICP and your persona and how they want to be sold to. So Natalie, you've called this out since day one, marketers hate being sold to, they hate salespeople. So what we did on the sales side was, okay, that makes sense. Let's create the most frictionless sales process we possibly can so that when this marketer who doesn't want to talk to me ends up inevitably talking to me, it's super easy. It's super transparent. They see our pricing. Our pricing makes sense. We take one call to run through discovery and a demo. I'm not going to ask you for 15 qualification calls. Like we have completely tailored our sales process around a marketer who I know doesn't want to talk to me. And this is the approach companies need to be taking when they're selling. Imagine selling to engineers. You think engineers want to talk to salespeople? They're 15 times smarter than me anyway. They, they, have, they don't care what I have to say. They already know that they're smarter than me. What, they, what do they want to do? They probably want to get hands on. So if you're selling to engineers, you need to create more self-serve model that they can just go have their fun. So the overall point here is, Nick and Natalie, you're, you're both right. Marketers hate salespeople. So understand what your ICP is as a go-to-market leader and build your sales motion around them, not at like, hey, this is what I used to do at Square. This is what I used to do at Front. So that's exactly what we're going to do here. Hey, I mean, it's, it's a good point. In the frictionless piece is important because so many companies don't do that right now. I can't tell you how many times I sit through a qualification call that could have been done over email. And then I'm sitting on a discovery call. I'm two calls deep before I even see a demo in some cases. And it's like, at that point, again, it's like, and not to call out any companies or anything, but you know, if you're spending, you know, 80, 90, $100,000 with some of these companies and like, that's what their sales process looks like. It's unfortunate because that's why the sales process is broken in today's world. I'm not docking any BDRs here. It is a very hard job, but I think- Natalie hates BDRs. Fail. 
hates no. them, hates BDRs. It's amazing. Not at all. No, I was going to say I'm defending you BDRs. I think we've set up BDRs to fail. We give them like two weeks ramp period. And we're like, hey, here's a bunch of one pagers on what our product does. Now go talk to people like you're an expert and figure out if they'd be a good fit for our product. The BDRs don't know if they're a good fit better than the actual person. So I don't know ex what the solution is. I don't know if it's more training. I don't know if we need to stop thinking about BDRs as being people right out of college and thinking about how can I take people who are familiar with my industry, who are experts, and have them be doing qualification outbound, if you all have good ideas. But I think we've we failed BDRs and give them almost an impossible task and then punish and fire them when they don't live up to this impossible task. I have some thoughts here. Like I think that I kind of see both angles. Some people have told me that salespeople shouldn't be paid commission. There should be no additional incentive, especially if marketing is driving. It's like, say marketing is driving 70 or 80% of the pipeline. Sales comes in and like, you know, they're driving 20%, but they're getting all this credit. They're making $500,000, $600,000 a year because marketing drove that. Now, the other side of it is like, should marketing be compensated like sales? If you do keep the commission model, it's like, should I, and this is the way that I think it should be. I think marketers, especially like the revenue marketers, it's like, you should be commissioned, accelerators, kickers. Like, think about that because then you're actually, you know, more than just like a bonus and around like OKRs or something like that. But like, you're incentivized to help move the needle at the end of the day. You're working, you're probably building stronger relationships with the sales team because you're both incentivized to help close and like win business together. So I don't think we'll ever, unfortunately, move to, the, to that side of it. I don't think we'll ever eliminate. I know there's some companies that have eliminated commission but I don't, I, I don't think it will ever go away. Nick, have you ever seen someone be comped on a people-first approach? Like, especially think BDRs, right? If they spent their time on LinkedIn, engaging with people, getting to know customers, that could solve some of the problems we were talking about, but they're not being comped on how many friends they make on LinkedIn. Have you ever seen any company have a model for that? No, I think, I think this whole idea of it, like, and how it all plays together is still, like, new, even knowing it's not really new. Now, it also depends, like, does the BDR team roll up under marketing? Because that could be a little bit different than rolling up under sales. Or maybe you all roll up under a CRO. Um, I, I haven't seen it. I think it would make a lot more sense because it's like, you know, why are you making a, a BDR do 100 cold calls a day, say, randomly? They got to send 500 emails and you got to connect with 40 people on LinkedIn. And it's basically just a numbers game at that point. But like, you're not really building relationships. It goes back to the transactional standpoint of it. It's like you're being a transactional person. And it's like, it's a company first mindset. Like you're not going to have a company. It's like any time marketers, it's a little bit easier. It's like, I can tell when someone is putting me in a sequence or a cadence and it's like copy and paste, like one line of personalization that they probably stole off my LinkedIn headline. Like now, if you really cared about me, and like who I am as a person, like you would know that I put a lot of personal information on there. And it's like, you could actually go and take this and I would 100% be willing to take a meeting with you or if I'm not the right person, point you in the right direction because you did your research. But people just care about quantity over quality. I feel like we've talked a lot about the issues and kind of what people first is, but if anyone's, I feel like there are a lot of marketers out there who are probably like, yes, I agree with this, but my boss still isn't on board. I'm gonna try to show some data, try to do some tests. But what are just some small things that maybe they can do that they can start inching towards people first, but maybe aren't like huge strategic changes that kind of alerts the boss that they're making some of these moves? Yeah, I mean, I think it falls under, it's really like three pillars. So it's like create demand, capture demand, convert demand. So many people talk about the create demand and capture demand, but they don't talk about the convert demand. And that's where like customer-led growth kind of falls under. And it's like even PLG kind of falls under that. 
the overarching theme is like the ecosystem, partner-led growth. And I think that's an important thing to talk about is like this whole ecosystem of like partners, you know, and that could look different to a lot of people. Maybe it's referral agreements, maybe it's advisors. I think advisors still under fall into partners to a certain degree. But when I think of like create, capture, and convert, it's like create is really that community-led growth. Like we want followers, we want engagement, we want leads. When you move to capture, it's more of that member-led growth. So you have the members, you have the SQLs, you have the opportunities. Now you're converting that demand under customer-led growth. So you have the customers, you have the renewals, you have the advocates. And there's offers that fall under those three kind of pillars as well. So there's more than likely you're already doing some variation of this, but it might be siloed to the overall like GTM model that you're actually running. Like you might be able to like, yeah, we focus customer marketing on the customer side, but they're not really talking to each other. And I think that's another bigger issue is like, so many people say there's no silos within their company, whether it's between sales and marketing, sales and CS, marketing and CS, whatever. There's silos in every company, whether you want to admit it or not. It's about what do you do to build those relationships and have that communication to eliminate those silos. One thing I think, similar to how in a lot of sales cycle, unless you ask why we win, you don't know that it was because your smooth sales process. I don't think a lot of people realize how much prospects are out there asking other customers asking other friends during the sales cycle, should I use this product or not? And that's ultimately what changed their mind. And we've heard that a few times from customers, but I'd argue if you can really focus in on that point, like if you're a marketer, probably the most impact you can make is just think how can you create advocates, partners, as you said, Nick, that can help vouch during the sales cycle for your product. You could use creators, again, going back to like borrowing trust and authority, like they already have the audience, people you want to sell to. You don't have to have me come out and pitch Nevadic at the end of the day, but if I can show experiences of like how I'm using it, it's going to be a lot more willing. I mean, we've seen this of like people be like, hey, you know, I've seen some really cool stuff that you did at Alice, for example. Like, who do you use, by the way? And again, like dark social, like they're doing the research of talking to other people within the community, relationships they built with people. Ultimately, they're going to come inbound. And if you can kind of paint that story of like, hey, here's how or why they came inbound it's a lot easier to kind of show the data back to the leadership team. I have a quick question, somewhat related. Nick, for you specifically, I've been really excited to ask you about this. I've been thinking about it a lot. So you've been on the cutting edge of this creator network, this idea of, of the creator and the influence it has in, in B2B SaaS. And we have completely adopted it here at Nevadic, the partnerships, working with influencers, creators. And it's been, like I said, phenomenal. Our strongest leads, I attribute a lot of our brand growth to that. Where is it going? What What is the ceiling for creators? What do you think this is this role is going to look like in the next year or two? Like Nevada aside, I'm just very curious, like what is the future of it going to look like? Because it's so hot right now. Where do you see it going? Yeah, I like I think, again, I think we're in the early adopter phase. I think that like, you will see mass adoption, at least in MarTech and sales tech within like two to three years. I read a survey. I forget who put it out. It was recent, but 88% of B2B companies in 2023 want to test influencer marketing, which is a crazy number. They just don't know how to get started. It's like you have very much an influencer marketing 1.0 model, which is like the brand telling the influencer what to do. You have these deliverables, go create content on this. It, it's a very siloed kind of approach still. I think what we're moving to, and some companies do this really well now, is like a 2.0, which is very much integrated into your go-to-market strategy. So like you're working with these creators and influencers, they're creating content maybe on your behalf, working with you on reports, events, things like that. But it's tying into your larger go-to-market strategy that they have input on. 
So what they're seeing in the market, again, they're probably thought leaders of somewhere in the space that you want to sell to. They're seeing a lot of stuff that maybe you want the information on. Same thing with like, you know, fail marketing and sales. It's like sales see stuff in the field. You're relaying that back to HQ. And I feel like that's the same model. I think the second piece is you're going to see more B2B companies hire creators onto their team, whether that's in an SME role, an evangelist type role, or just like a straight up creator role. I mean, I know Lavender didn't do this on purpose, but if you look at the, the entire Lavender marketing team, I mean, they're all creators and they all have really good followings. They all put out amazing content. Lavender's blown up since they've all been there. Now I know they hire them because they're amazing people and like they hire them for their skill set, but it just worked out as well. And I do think more B2B companies are going to start to create roles. These won't be readily available roles, but they'll be like, hey, I have a short list of five people that I think could fit this type of role. I'm going to go reach out to them and we're going to build a job description together. That makes a little sense. That's really cool. Also, what you said around 83-ish or whatever percent of, of companies who are interested in getting into this, but the biggest barrier is that they don't know how. Sounds like a really good software product that somebody can build a platform to introduce you to creators. Nick, take it and run with it. I, I'm, I'm tempted. I, I, there's been people that have, B2C has this figured out, but like B2B has fig, hasn't figured out how to monetize these platforms yet. And I've known people that have created kind of like a matchmaking service for B2B brands and it's just fizzled out. And I don't think that like they figured out how to get like, I don't think B2B brands are bought into this vision yet or like know how. It's like, yeah, you could sign up for this platform, but what if you, you don't know how to actually integrate it into your strategy? So it's like, you know, there's an opportunity for like, creator led as a service which i may try to steal so in a year from now when nick has the hottest software product i'm gonna say was developed on revenue on the rocks awesome well we're somehow already this always happens we're at 45 minutes it flies by and we have to let nick keep going on with his day but before we wrap up just love any final tips or thoughts on just how to treat your prospects like people i would say just Focus on the relationships. Focus on like what they actually care about, where they are. Meet your buyers where they are. If they're on a Slack community, if maybe they're in Reddit, maybe they're in Aura, whatever the thing is, it's like they're not all on LinkedIn because I was talking to someone about manufacturing and like manufacturing people aren't on LinkedIn, but they spend $30,000 on like newspaper sponsorships because they're so old school that they don't know how to actually like get into reaching the right people and they have crazy amounts of money. That's an untapped market, by the way, if you want to like get into like the creator side of it, which is so interesting to me. But like, again, it's figuring out where they are, build those relationships and just give value. Like I'm not for me for three and a half years, I'm give, 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 give. Now I'm at the point of like asking because I'm building something on my own, but I've hopefully given enough value over three and a half years between prospects, between customers, between just marketers and salespeople in general, that now that I'm asking for something it will work out. Yeah, and my advice, pretty similar to Nick, sort of in the same vein, is figure out who you're selling to. And you don't even necessarily need to ask those prospects or ask customers that you're working with. You can ask somebody internally who works in that department. If you are selling to engineers, go talk to your engineers and ask them, how would you like to be sold to? What would be a turnoff? What, what would you love? Figure out how to develop a process that directly meets what your ICP loves and hates. I think my biggest thing here and how we've sort of done at Novatic, tying to the whole theme of this podcast is this really has to be a joint marketing and sales effort because leadership is going to scoff a little bit at the idea of spending money on creators or influencers, especially if they're more old school. So you need sales on your team. And so you need to do some testing with them to get them to say what Ben said earlier on this podcast, that these are some of our best leads. You hear that, you're golden. But if you're trying to do this as a silo, it's much harder for marketing. 
Well, this was, as always, so awesome. I feel like we use all these just to ask all of our burning questions. Nick, thank you so much for joining us and excited to see when you come out with, you know, the creator software product in a, a year or so. Appreciate you having me. This was fun.